All right, turn please to John, the Gospel of John. Last week we looked at the introduction to John and just spent some time in John's prologue, just looking at how he maps out the entire book through these first 18 verses. This week we're going to be looking at John chapter 1 from verse 19 through to the end of verse 34. If you'd like a title for this message, I've called it Not Me, Him. Not Me, Him. And what we're going to be doing, really from chapter 1 verse 19 through to verse 11 of chapter 2, this is is Jesus' first week of ministry, okay? So to give you context... John has just given us a prologue, mapped out the whole book. This is where the book really starts then, with Jesus' first week of ministry. So let's read from verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, Nope. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him, And said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because He was before me. I myself did not know Him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that He might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we come to your word, I I come to your word this morning as a servant who is who is tired, who is weak. And Lord, I ask then for your strength. Because Lord, in our weakness, you you can make us strong. And in our weakness, you can do great things. And so Lord, you have your way amongst us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you truly breathe life into our souls? Would you open our eyes to behold the wonders of the risen Savior? And would we go away not just academically affected, but truly amazed. Lord, did you influence our hearts? Would you stir our souls and have your way in Jesus' name? Amen. If I was to ask you, who would be the individual who has had the greatest impact on your Christian life? 
In particular, who has had the greatest impact on your view of God? Who God is, how amazing and compelling God is, what he has done. Then what would you say? Who would you say has had this impact, this specific impact on your life? That's the question that I was really considering and knocking about this week, just in my own study and my own study of this text. And I got to thinking that really there's four people in my life, in particular, that have had a big impact in my life. The first two would be my mum and dad. I'm just so grateful that I got to grow up in a Christian home, and although I gave my mum and dad a hard time regularly, they, they taught me what it is to, to be passionate about the Saviour and what it is to be passionate about the kingdom of God, and what it is to truly lay your life down, to, to serve people. I saw them do that day after day after day. I saw them worship the Savior and give themselves to the bride of Christ. And I'm so grateful for them. Another person that comes to mind as I consider that question is a man called Pete Bowley. Pete Bowley was one of my first pastors when I, when I was a student. When I was 18 years old, I was quite busy wrecking my life bit by bit and Pete Bowley was one of the pastors that really came alongside me to, to help me and assist me and to help me to see Jesus and the gospel and in the midst of, of the troubles that I was walking through in my life. I'm grateful for him, the view of God that he gave me. Another man is Pete Greasley, a guy who many of you know. Pete was the guy who really mentored me from being 18 through to like 36 you know i was working with him at Christchurch. i was the executive pastor there and he was the senior pastor there and i'm just so grateful for the leadership that he's given me throughout my life and in particular the the vision of god's grace he has given me he breathes a grace that when i encounter pete you, you can't spend long with pete without coming away with an amazement of the grace of god what jesus has done for us and so as I considered that question, those were the four that instantly came to mind. But there was also one who came to mind who, who I've never met. And that's a man by the name of John Piper. See, John Piper, I think, has a unique ability to give individuals a wonderful view of the supremacy and the amazement of Christ, a wonderful view of who God is. John Piper is the preaching pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota, He's a very popular conference speaker, and so I think he actually came here. Well, he did. He came here last year, and I was actually doing a, a one conference, and he was at Katoomba for a few weeks. And he does have a wonderful ability of taking a congregation to the greatness and splendor of God. I remember the first time I read one of his books, The Pleasures of God. It was the first one I came across. And it changed my life, man, just reading about the pleasures of God, the greatness of God in election, the greatness of God in choosing his son, the greatness of God in all the different things. I was coming away every time after each chapter, just wanting to worship there and then. You could so clearly see God operating through his words. Then came across desiring God, and when I don't desire God, and God is the gospel. And everything I read, every time the theme was the same, you came away with an amazement of God, beholding God in all his glory. But another thing I really appreciate about John Piper is his humility. See, to encounter John Piper, whether it be in preaching or, or in written form, or whether it be overhearing in the conversation, which I have had the privilege of doing, one of the things that's clear about John is he's really not that bothered about himself at all. He's just not interested in himself, but he's very interested in God. He's not interested in people's affection per se. He's interested in diverting our affections to God and to the greatness of God. And in short, 
That is exactly what this passage is about in front of us. See, you can sum up this whole passage from verse 19 through to the end of verse 34 in three words. Not me, him. Not me, him. You see, to be faithful to this text, we really have to look at two points. So, you know, if you want a three-point sermon, unlucky, because there's only two points here according to the Apostle John. So there's two clear points that he's talking to us about here within this context. The first is John, the glorious announcer. And that runs from verse 19 through to the end of verse 28. See, John the Baptist was something of a cult hero at this time. This guy is incredibly popular. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people coming out to encounter John the Baptist. They're flocking out from Jerusalem. They're flocking out from the towns. They're flocking out from the cities. They want to see John the Baptist. They want to hear John the Baptist in his preaching. They want to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the Apostle John's friend. See, in verse 35, which Brendan is going to be talking about next week, there are two disciples that John the Baptist encourages towards Jesus. One of them's Andrew, and the other one we never know his name. You want to know why we never know his name? Because it's John the Apostle. John the Apostle used to be a, a follower of John the Baptist. And it was John the Baptist that said, you know what, don't, don't follow me, follow Jesus. He's the one. So John knew him well. And so when he encountered John the Baptist, what he encountered was a man that he knew well and he knew then that John the Baptist was a profoundly humble man. But John the Baptist, it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. And so from verse 19 through 28, we have John, the glorious announcer. And then from verse 29 through 34, we have Jesus, the great announced. The one who John is pointing to the one who John the Baptist wants to give all attention to, the one who John the Baptist wants to take our eyes and takes our affections from himself and push them onto Jesus, the great announcer. So let's start where he starts. Number one, with John, the glorious announcer. See, John the Baptist, if you went back 2,000 years ago and you were studying Palestine and you went into Palestine and asked the question, listen, who is the most famous person in Palestine? Who's the dude that is always on the front, pitch, front page of the Palestinian Times? Who is the guy that everybody knows about? He's influencing everybody. Everybody's talking about this guy. Who would it be? Everybody would say, oh, it's John the Baptist. He's so popular. Everybody knows who John the Baptist is. He's a guy who's profound in his popularity. And if you ask John, who is the most popular person in Palestine? If he was honest, you'd have to say, well, right now, myself. I know it's a shock, but it is actually me. He is having everybody come to see him. He's a really eccentric guy. He's really quite strange. He makes my diet look positively good. I mean, this guy lives off locusts and wild honey. That's kind of strange. And when you encounter him, you find his dress sense is also a little odd. If this dude was walking into Sovereign Grace Church with his locusts and honey and wearing his camel hair, we might ask him to turn him round and show him another church down the road because it would be very strange. This guy is a bit of a fruitcake. And yet people, they love him. They are flocking to see him. They're amazed at what is taking place in the life of John the Baptist. See, after 400 years of what seems to be prophetic silence, there is a general thinking in the land of Palestine that John has come. God is now speaking to us again through John. Some people thought he was probably the Messiah, that he was the promised one. Some people thought maybe he's Elijah. Other people thought he's probably the prophet that is prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18. 
the guy who is going to be in, just like Moses, who is going to come to redeem his people. And so people are flocking out in their droves to see John, to hear him, and to get baptized by him. And as a result, a particular group of people that want to find out about John the Baptist are the Pharisees. See, many people that the Pharisees are, are, are the bad guys, right? We hear about the Pharisees, we think, oh, naughty people. But in many ways, they started out as, as the good guys. You see, the Pharisees were just people that were passionate about the Bible. They were the ones that would be saying to folk, you know what, lukewarm Christianity is sick, get out. They were wanting to help people see that, you know what, the law, God's law is vital and it is true. This is what pleases the Lord. The problem is the good guys went bad because the good guys then started to extend Scripture. They so wanted to protect the laws of God. They built another set of laws around the laws of God. And then the generation after that built another set of laws around the set of laws around the laws of God. And before you know it, there was just legalism that was being rife amongst them as a nation as the Pharisees are saying, you know what? It isn't just thou should not kill. It's this as well and it's this as well. There were hundreds of laws that the Pharisees instituted to try and protect the laws of God. But ultimately, it, it came originally from a good, passionate heart. But it went horribly wrong. And you see really what it is turned to when they come to John the Baptist here and find out from him, what is your problem? See, the Pharisees send a delegation, don't they? It says in verse 19, when the Jews, meaning the Pharisees, as we see in verse 24, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. And so John the Baptist, Mr. Popular, has this delegation come out to inquire of him, who are you? What is your problem? You know, in the Greek, when you really look at that at any length, in verse 19 where it says, who are you? (laughs) It really means, who do you think you are? They are standing tall against John the Baptist and saying, look, we are the guardians of the truth. We are the religious leaders of the time. You have gained popularity. You are now baptizing people. Who do you think you are? What is your problem? What is your issue? And so they start to ask him questions. Verse 19, who are you? Well, John the Baptist instantly knew that their concern or their question was, are you the Messiah? And so he makes it very clear to them, no, I'm not the Messiah. So verse 21, they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? There was this common understanding that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And that the Elijah would come in person, having gone off in a chariot, he would now come back in a chariot and declare the paths of Jesus. Are you Elijah? No. No, I'm definitely not Elijah. Okay. So are you the prophet? The prophet mentioned in Deuteronomy 18. A prophet like Moses, one who would deliver his people, one who would come to deliver the people of God. Are you him? No. You know, one thing's for sure. John is a man of not many words. You know what I'm saying? He's not, he's, not, he's not saying a lot, so they're really quite excited about, who are you? What is your problem? And every time, he just keeps saying, nope, nope, not me. It can seem kind of strange, but it is very, very deliberate. See, John is not consumed about himself. He's not interested in talking about himself. One commentator that I was reading this week says the increasing curtness of John's successive answers should not be missed. It is deliberate. 
and it appears to stem from a dislike in answering questions about himself. He's not interested in himself. You know, that is quite a provocation to me. It's got nothing to do with the text, but it's been quite a provocation to me just thinking about his example this week. See, John doesn't like talking about himself. I am my own specialist topic. You know, if I was a mastermind and they said, well, what topic do you want to do? I think, ah, myself, I'll talk about myself. Because, because my temptation is to want to talk about myself. But John the Baptist is the exact opposite. He does not want to talk about himself. He's not interested in himself. So are you them? No. I, are you this guy? No. Well, they keep pressing him because they've got to go back with an answer. Who are you, man? What are you about? And so in verse 22, they ask him again, who are you then? And in verse 23, this is what he says. He tells them who he is. He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. You know what I am? In all my popularity, with all the people that are coming to me, with all the people that want to see me and hear me and want to get baptized to me, you need to understand, I'm just a voice. I'm just an announcer. There's nothing worth bothering about with me. I'm just an appointer, a voice pointing to one who is going to come after me. And so it's not me who you should be bothered about. It really doesn't matter about me. Not me. Him. Not me. Him. Verse 29 then. We read this. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, the glorious announcer, now starts to introduce Jesus. Jesus, point two, as the great announced. See, John is not interested about talking about himself. He's not interested about asking, answering questions about himself. But he's very interested in talking and answering questions about him. He wants to transfer all attention of anybody who will listen to Jesus. He wants us to see that Jesus is the great announced. And so throughout these six verses, he spends time showing us who Jesus is. Basically saying, listen, all eyes on me. Now behold your God. This is him. This is Jesus, the great announced. My whole life, everything I've done has all been about him. And he introduces us then to three things about Jesus, about this glorious one who he now points to. The first thing is this. Jesus is the true Son of God. Look at verse 30. He says, This is he of whom I have said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. That's a little bit odd. You see, Jesus and John are are related, right? Remember the story, Christmas time, Gabriel rocks up, goes to see John's mum, Elizabeth, and helps Elizabeth see you're going you're to have a baby, call him John. That's really a weird thing to do because the dad's name was Zachariah. So your eldest son, you would call him Zachariah, but no, don't call him Zachariah, call him John. And six months later, Gabriel turns up to Mary, who is Elizabeth's cousin, and says, you're going to have a baby, and I want you to call him Jesus. So John's mum and Jesus' mum are cousins. But here's the thing. John was born six months before Jesus. He's older than Jesus. 
So what is he on about here when he's saying, you know what, I didn't know him, but this is him. This is him. After me comes a man who ranks before me. Well, he didn't come after you. How, how does this work? How did he, he came after you, but how does he rank before you? That doesn't make sense. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, you know what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. After me comes one who ranks before me, one who is there at the creation of time. When the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the one who spins the galaxy, the one who breathes forth the stars, in the beginning he was there. And you want to know who he is? (laughs) Behold, that's him. It's Jesus. He is the Word. He is the one in the beginning. As I consider him, John says, I'm not worthy to untie the strap on his sandals. You know, that would be considered to, not even, to be too derogatory even for a slave. Even a slave wouldn't be asked to undo the strap on a sandal. But John said, I, you know what? I wouldn't be worthy even to do that. Because this is the one. This is the Word. This is the one that was with God and was indeed God. This is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one through Him all things were made. This is the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. This is the one whom we'll all stand one day and give an account to for our lives. And to Him will go all glory and all honor and all praise. It is not about me. It's about Him. This is Him. Jesus, he's the son of God, the the one we've all been waiting for, the savior of the world. But he's not just the true son of God. Here's what else, in verse 29, we also see that Jesus is the ultimate sin taker. Let's read verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To the Jew, that was a massive, massive statement. See, to the Jewish mind, when they heard the phrase, Lamb of God, what do you think would immediately run through their minds? What would immediately run through their minds is the Passover and the Passover lamb. And so this was a very complex issue for them, and indeed an incredibly massive, life-changing statement. See, in the Old Testament, all the Jews would know that by very nature, sin is massive and has great consequences. They would get that. They would all grasp that. They realized sin is a massive deal, and the consequences of sin is death and being cut off from God. They would understand that very vividly, but they would also understand through Old Testament preaching and teaching of the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, one who would be their substitute, one who would bleed and die in their place, one who would be cut off from God in their place. And they knew this because of the Passover. You see, in New Testament times, as this is going on, a lot would be happening in Jerusalem. It was crazy stuff going on. Once a year, all the Jews would descend on Jerusalem. Josephus said that Jerusalem would often fill by millions more in that season. Some people say, and I think that's probably overrated, but the general feel is nonetheless, there were millions of people now descending on Jerusalem. All the Jews would come together, and at twilight on the day of the Passover, each father, each head of the household, would take a spotless lamb, 
This is gruesome stuff, okay? But figure the scene. They would take a spotless lamb, a small lamb that would be pure, without blemish, not a broken bone in his body, and the father representing the family would take that lamb to the temple. And when he gets to the temple and he stands in line, he would take a blade and he would slit the throat of the lamb. For all you vegetarians, sorry, but it's true. He would slit the throat of the lamb. The blood would be poured into the bowls that the priest would hold. And then the priest, on behalf of that father who is representing the household, would pour that blood onto the altar as a sacrifice. And that was the Passover lamb. It was a brutal scene as all the fathers of the homes stood along a line ready to sacrifice their lamb. Many priests would be lined up ready to comprehend what was about to take place as the whole of Israel realized, my sin, my sin is so serious that this lamb has to be slaughtered in my place. They got that. They understood the seriousness of sin. And they understood the incredible nature then of the Passover lamb. For this lamb would be slaughtered in their place. And then comes this statement. Behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's staggering. For generations it's not been this way. It's been about me killing a lamb. But now something else is coming about. Something else is, is taking place. And it's a man. It's, it's Jesus. See, have you ever wondered why we don't still do this? Why we don't still take a lamb once a year and kill it? You ever wondered? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why we now, as a generation on from this, don't now have to take a lamb and slaughter this lamb and offer it before the Lord on behalf of ourselves and our families. We don't have to do it Because behold, the Lamb of God who come to take away the sin of the world. We don't have to do it because Jesus Christ came. John the Baptist would never see that sacrifice. He would be beheaded before that day would arrive for Jesus. But the Apostle John, as he pens this letter to us, did see it. The Apostle John saw the true Passover Lamb, the ultimate Lamb of God, being slaughtered in front of his very eyes. The Apostle John stood there at the foot of the cross with Mary, Jesus' mum. They stood. John looking at his friend. Mary looking at her son. With his arms stretched wide. Nails in his hands and feet. Bloodied all over, having been whipped, having been carnaged, having been beaten. And they saw the Savior, the Passover lamb, as we'll see further on in the book, mother, behold your son. And son, behold your mother. As he shows them compassion and grace, they would have heard him say, I thirst. What tears that must have caused them, trying to discern what the Lamb of God is going through in their place in that moment. They would have stood there and they would have heard him say, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the Apostle John would have stood and heard Jesus and saw Jesus with his own eyes declare, it is finished. What is finished? The sacrifice is finished. For behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, now it is finished. 
He has bled for us. He has died for us. The ultimate Passover lamb has now been killed in our place. The ultimate Passover lamb has died in the place of all those who would put their faith in him as Lord and Savior of their lives. Jesus is the ultimate sin taker. This is mind-blowing for the Jews, and I trust it is mind-blowing for us still today. We don't have to kill a Passover lamb because, behold, the Lamb of God has come. Jesus is not only the Son of God. Jesus is the ultimate sin taker. Bruce Milne says this. He says, Few aspects of the gospel need greater or more frequent reaffirmation than this one. For how many people struggle for survival beneath the crushing burdens of guilt? I believe that's true. See, the Bible is clear that if you're a redeemed person, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are completely and utterly forgiven. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Romans 4 verse 7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And Hebrews 8 verse 12 says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. Listen, this is, this is God. I'll be merciful towards them. Oh, and I will remember their sins no more. The truth of the Bible is that forgiveness is total and that forgiveness is complete. And yet, I think when we move away from beholding God, we can so easily forget that. And I think it is then in that moment that we find, just as Bruce Milne says, we find ourselves beneath the crushing burden of guilt. You ever known that experience? See, maybe you're here today and you are painfully aware of some past sin in your life. And you drag it around with you then like a hundred pound stone all the time. It is always there and you've asked for forgiveness from the Lord and and on occasions you experience some level of forgiveness and yet it, it is always there. The guilt of it, the shame of it, the grief of what has taken place in your life. Maybe something has happened even this week in your life and you are aware of the guilt and the shame that has taken place. You've asked for forgiveness of the Lord, you've sought that forgiveness and yet you, you still sense and experience guilt and shame and burden. You know what, folks? The reason why we sense guilt and shame is because those are the darts of the evil one. He seeks to tempt us to despair and he seeks to tell us of the guilt within. That is always the darts of the evil one that wants to say to us, just like he did in the Garden of Eden, did God really say that? Are you sure? Do you? He still does the same things. And so he seeks to tempt us to despair, saying, you know what, I know it says in the Bible you're forgiven, but do you, do you feel that? Because I don't think you feel that. I know you don't feel that. This isn't going to work out. Clearly you're not. He seeks to tempt us to despair and tell us of the guilt within, of the guilt within of all the things we've done in our past, sometimes significant, sometimes insignificant, but as a whole, without question, he seeks to arm us back and point our attention back to those sins. And it is shame and guilt that we then feel in our lives. What then are we called to do when Satan tempts us to despair? I'll tell you what we're called to do. We stand with John the Baptist and we say, listen, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. For Jesus Christ came and died on a cross and bled the death that you should have bled. 
He was cut off from God in a way that you should have been cut off from God. But because He has now done that, He has taken the consequences of your sin in full. Is there shame and is there guilt connected with your sin? Is there severe consequences in connection with your sin? Absolutely. Ask a Jew that was taking a lamb to the Passover temple. Ask an individual, individual who is looking on at the Savior dying in their place. Is there consequence to our sin? Yes, it is massive. But has it been dealt with in full? Oh, yes, it has. And so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sin has grave consequences. And that consequence has been paid for in complete and utter fullness by Jesus Christ on the cross. Isn't that incredible? Jesus is the ultimate sin taker. And so as Horatio Spafford says, my sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. My friends, would that be our constant confession? When Satan tempts me to despair, behold the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, the one who died in my place, the one who bled for me, the one who did all things connected with my sin so that I can now be completely forgiven. So when Satan tempts me to despair, he can get lost because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've been forgiven of my sin. It is finished. He said it, not me. So I'm with him. Behold the Lamb of God. That's not all, though. There's also something else in verse 31 through 33. The final thing that John wants us to see is this. Jesus is the abundant life giver. Look at verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now verse 32 is really pretty intriguing. Because verse 32 is yet another reference to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. See, what is incredible in this is it's quite clear scripturally that at some point John the Baptist has encountered God and John the Baptist has been instructed by God to baptize people but he makes it clear to him that John one will come and you will see them the spirit of God descend on him and it will remain and that is how you will know that this is the one this is the son of God this is the one who will baptize in the spirit well John waits and he waits keeps checking it out but then Jesus comes. And we read in one of the other Gospels, that's exactly what takes place. As John baptizes him, he comes out of the water and the Spirit of God descends and it doesn't leave. That is so different to everything else that happens in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God descends on people. So you study your Old Testament scriptures. The Holy Spirit descends on people. They do incredible things and the Holy Spirit goes. Not with Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends and he remains. But this is whole This whole passage here, these three verses are, are enshrined in, in, in the premise of baptism. There's a lot of baptism language going on in what he's saying. And the question really is, why? 
why does he keep going on about this baptism? What has that got to do with being an abundant life giver? What difference does baptism make in the story of what John is trying to explain here? Why all this baptism language? Well, the reason for that is simple. Baptism is initiatory. It speaks of a new start. It always speaks of a new start and it always speaks of a new beginning. And so baptism by very nature is initiatory. So that's the case with John the Baptist's baptisms. That's what he does. He gets all these people out, both Jews and Gentiles. That would be radical because Jews didn't get baptized. Gentiles got baptized to become Jews. But John's saying, look, forget that. You're all unclean. You all need a bit of this. So he's calling them all out to a baptism of repentance. And they're all coming out and they're all being baptized in their multitudes by John the Baptist for a fresh start. They're all being baptized into this repentance baptism as they recognize formally that I am defiled and I need to be washed clean. So symbolically, he's baptizing them in that to help them see that you need to be cleansed and you need to be cleaned. But John the Baptist is very aware that my baptism in many ways sucks because my baptism isn't enough. There will need to be something more for people to really be saved. There will need to be something more for people to really grasp the greatness of God. There will really need to be something more for people to enjoy a new beginning that is life and life in abundance, which is that promised in the Old Testament. My baptism can't do that. My baptism is initiatory. It is preparatory. But one will need to come who baptizes with the Spirit of God. See, he knew that if people were going to experience life and that in abundance... They would need the baptism of the Spirit. A baptism of the Holy Spirit would need to be breathed into them. A baptism of the Spirit in which new life would be birthed into people's souls. A baptism of the Spirit which would birth in people's lives true and genuine abundant life. Not any forgiveness. Forgiveness is great. But forgiveness just gets us back from really bad to zero. That's not great news. But what John is pointing to here about another baptism to come is a baptism that will not only give you forgiveness, it will give you abundant life. Through this baptism of the Spirit, you will be justified. You will be declared righteous before God. You will be clothed in the righteousness of another so that you can stand before the Lord completely blameless, not only on zero, but full with blessings as a child of the King as Jesus Christ lived the life for you. A baptism of the Spirit where you realize and recognize reconciliation. A joining back to God who made you. A joining back to the one who you were made for. To find our identity and our security and our blessing in Him. A baptism of the Spirit which would bring about an assurance that we've been adopted into the family of God. Not just cause to sit at the back. But like Rahab, welcomed into the very family of God where we're given purpose and protection and care. A father who watches over our coming and our going, who watches over our whole lives. A baptism in the Spirit which gives us assurance that heaven is indeed going to be our eternal home. John knew my baptism cannot do that. But one will come whose baptism in the Spirit will do that. And then his point is simple. Behold, This is him. I saw the Spirit descend, just like God said it would, and it did not leave him. So behold, this is him. He's not only God, he's not only the ultimate sin taker, but he is the abundant life giver. He is the one who will breathe life into your life. So Jesus himself 
in, in opposition to the devil, says he only comes to kill, rob and destroy. But I come so that you may have life and life in abundance. What John the Baptist is saying here is that life in abundance is going to come through the baptism of the Spirit. It is regeneration. It is salvation. And it is that which Jesus has come for. So just like in the Old Testament, when God needed to breathe life into Adam, a lifeless being, and God breathed life into Adam and Adam stood up. Just like in the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan walks around the stone statues and breathes on them, and they come alive. So now Jesus comes as the Lamb of God, and for all those who will put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior, he breathes life. Not only forgiveness, but life. Life and that in abundance into their lives. What a saviour, don't you think? What a God. This isn't just a guy who's rocked up and thought, well, I'll have a go. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. This is the ultimate sin taker. This is the abundant life giver. And so as John stands near him, his message is simple. You know that I'm popular. You've all come out to see me. You've all come out to hear me. You want me to baptize you? About 2,000 years from now, I'm even going to be known as John the Baptist. That's how much you want to baptize. I know that. But not me. It's him. Not, not me. It's all about him. Folks, if you're here today and, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's something you need to know. Christianity is not about going to church. It is not about reading your Bible. Christianity at root level primarily is not about praying, being kind to people. I love church. I love being with people. I love the community that that brings. I love it. But Christianity is really not about that. Christianity at its very core and its very root is about understanding and believing that when it comes to salvation... Our only hope and our only answer is not me, him. It's got nothing to do with what we do. Christianity has got everything to do with him. See, the Bible's clear that in our sin we are cut off from God. We're not able to spend time and commune with God because of our sin. It's a theme all the way through the Old Testament. It's a theme all the way through the New Testament. And you only have to look out your window in the morning to realize it's a theme in the world today. We sin. We reject God. We exchange the Creator for the created. And as a result, we are cut off from God and dead in our transgressions and sins. And yet the Bible also screams to us that, Behold, the Lamb of God has come. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came on the greatest rescue mission ever told about. And He came so that you may have life and life in abundance through faith in His finished work alone. The root of Christianity is not doing things for God. The root of Christianity is realizing, I can't do it. It is allowing yourself, in the right sense, to drown as you realize, I cannot save myself. And it's when we do that and we put our faith in another that we begin the life and life in abundance. That's why he came. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, I urge you, put your faith in him, him 
as your Lord and Saviour. And you will know the life and life in abundance that he's talking about here. Forgiveness, justification, reconciliation, adoption, assurance that heaven is your home. That's what it's about. Christianity at root isn't about what we can do for God. It is all about what God has done for us. So if we can help you with that, we'd love you. We'd love to do that. Talk to the person who brought you or come and talk to me. We'd love to talk to you more about how do you respond to that. But in essence, it's not hard. You simply at some point in your life, whether it be in your mind or out loud, say, Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? And I put my faith in you as Lord and Saviour. Let us know if you do that because that's called becoming a Christian. And we'd love to then disciple you and help you in your walk with the Lord. If though you are already a believer, which is many of us here, I want to encourage you, my friends, through this text, behold your God. Behold him in all his glory. Jesus is the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that person is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate sin taker. He's died as the great Passover lamb so that we no longer have to kill animals. He died in our place. And he, without question, is the abundant life giver. So I encourage you, behold your God. And as you do then, would this be your confession? Not me. Him. For consider your calling, brothers, Paul says. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not me. Him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, how good it is to gather around your word and to see you so wonderfully preached and upheld from John the Baptist. Lord, I thank you for John. I thank you that he was the final Old Testament prophet and I thank you for his example as the glorious announcer. But Lord, we, we stand in awe this morning in front of you, in front of Jesus, the great announced. Lord, to consider your greatness and your splendor, to consider who you are, to consider that you were there in the beginning and that you spoke forth time, to consider that you breathed out the galaxies and then you clothed yourself in flesh to be the Passover lamb. Lord, would we never tire of beholding you. Lord, would we grow to understand that the more we look at you, the more there is to see. We would never exhaust your immensity and your greatness and your worth. So would we gaze and would we lose ourselves in wonder, Lord, not us, but you. You're worthy of all our praise, Lord. And so in your greatness, would you always be our boast. In Jesus' name. Amen.